Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve. And a good morning and welcome. Uh, let's get our, our uh, Bibles out. Let's all have our eyes on God's Word this morning. And a great lead-in as we think about Ephesians 4 and Psalm 1 and being trees that are firmly planted in God's Word. And uh, continuing in our sermon series uh, through the Gospel of Mark. And as we continue in Mark, we're going to be in Mark 4 this morning. And uh, almost all of Mark 4. But as, as we come to Mark 4 this morning, we come to this section of parables. And these, these teachings that uh, Jesus has uh, for us. And really by way of introduction, as we think about parables and as we think about this uh, particular text here this morning, uh, sometimes we have this tendency with parables is, is we'll take them and, and we'll divorce them uh, from the whole of the biblical text. We'll isolate them from uh, the, the context and the other things that are going on. And then when we do that, what we have is we have this one simple story devoid of everything else around it. And very quickly what we do is we just begin to moralize with the text. Let me give you a couple of examples. Parable of the Good Samaritan. See, Luke, in writing that particular um, gospel, when he gets to that particular point, he's driving home a much larger thing than just that one story. But oftentimes we get to the Good Samaritan, we, we isolate that, we pull that out of, of, of uh, the, the context there, and when we moralize it, here's what we do, is we go, well, be a good neighbor. It's like spiritual state farm, right? It's like, be a good neighbor, love your neighbor, be kind to people. That's not what Luke's telling us. He's telling us something very distinct about Jesus, and that Jesus is the ultimate neighbor, that Jesus is the greatest neighbor. Maybe one of the parables we do the most with, uh, this with, is one of the ones we're going to look at this morning. We talk about these four soils, the first of four parables that we're going to see this morning. And if we isolate that from the context, if we remove that from all these other things that have been going on that Mark has been pushing us towards and pressing us towards, we, we look at these four soils and we go, well, don't be the first soil. We do, don't, don't be a path. Uh, don't be rocky. Don't be thorny. Be good soil. And if you wanted to be kitschy or cute, you would say something like, be manure for Jesus, right? And in that, we've missed the whole point of what he's after. See, because Mark in his writing, he, he's not writing chronologically. Mark does not care about the order of events in Jesus' life. He is writing thematically. He's concerned with particular concepts and placing them together. And so when we think about just where we've been in the last couple of weeks, back in chapter 3, two different times, Jesus had these run-ins with the religious leaders. And these issues and these, this, this conflict and this tension that exists there. And so when we get to chapter 4, part of what's happening here is we see Mark beginning to point out and identify, listen, there are some who are with Jesus. They're on the inside. In fact, if you look at verse 11, he talks about people being on the outside. There are some who are on the inside who are with Jesus. And there are some who are on the outside who are opposed to Jesus. And so when we consider that and we consider the whole of these parables, we have to consider the context that they find themselves in and that Mark is leading us to a particular conclusion here. And that's why the title of the message this morning is Kingdom Living. 
kingdom living. We want to be living for the kingdom. And I think these parables, really any parable is going to point us to the kingdom, but these parables specifically are going to point us to some specific aspects of how we live in the kingdom. Really the, the, the nail or the theme this morning is that kingdom living, if we're going to be people who live for the kingdom, kingdom living demands that kingdom priorities become my priority. The things that God is about become the things that I am about. The thing that God is fired up about, those are the things that you and I become fired up about. Kingdom priorities or kingdom living demands that kingdom priorities become our priorities. So I want to read all 34 verses. I know that's a big text to read through. Uh, read along with me. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the lobby. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. But I'd encourage every one of you every Sunday, have God's word in front of you. Because that's, I have no power to affect any change in your life. I don't know if you know that. I know that. I have no disillusionment whatsoever that I have any capacity or ability to change you. But I have great confidence that God has the power and ability to change every one of us. And one of the ways that he does that is through his word. And so uh, my words are meaningless, devoid of God's word. And so we should all have God's word in front of us. So let's read God's word. Let's see what God himself is saying. And then we'll walk back through this text. But starting in verse 1, Mark tells us this. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Again, this crowd control measure. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Now, I think that's important, loved ones. Because then Mark's going to tell us four different parables that Jesus tells. He wants us to see all of these parables in connection with one another. Okay, he doesn't want us to isolate these things. He was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then Mark begins to tell us about something that happens once the crowd has gone away. So it's entirely possible that verses 10 through 20 happen after Jesus taught these parables. These other parables we'll look at. It's entirely possible these other parables are from an entirely different part of Jesus' ministry. Right? It's thematic. It's conceptual. It's not chronological. So here Jesus says in verse 10, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. What in the world is going on there, man? Tell us about these seeds and these soils and what are you after? Verse 11, he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and then here he quotes from Isaiah 6, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And then Jesus begins to explain this specific parable. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. 
Verse 16, and these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And then this final soil here. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And then he, Mark moves us to these three other parables here that we see in verses 21 through 34. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he continues along with that, or continuing to unfold that thought. In verse 24, he says to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And in verse 26, this third parable the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And then this fourth parable in verse 30. With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And then Mark summarizes this whole thing in verse 33 and 34 by saying this. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And really our desire this morning as we look at this text, as, as we um, look at these different parables, is to see the connection between all of them, to see how they're tied to one another, how we, we, we don't isolate them both from each other nor from the broader context of, of, of the story that Mark is moving us through. And each of these parables, right, each of them dealing with some aspect of the kingdom of God, moving us to some particular piece or part of, of the kingdom of God. And so we want to see the interconnectedness, but we also want these parables to speak into our life, to challenge us, um, to encourage us, to convict us, to exhort us, whatever it may be uh, that God wants to do with respect uh, to all of these things, both in terms of the big umbrella, big picture message that Jesus has, but also with the specific aspects in each of these parables. So let's just look at each of them here. And looking at verses 1 through 20, we see this first parable, the parable of the sowers. And... Uh, if you look on the back of your uh, bulletin, you have the sermon outline, and you can see that, that really we've done two things. One is we identify the, um, the, the main concept or element that Jesus uses in each of the parables, and then the specific teaching point that he has. And so in verses 1 through 20, we see the soils, and what Jesus is after is that we would both hear and respond to uh, the message of the kingdom of God. This first parable is about our receptivity or lack thereof to God's word. 
So let's just notice a few things here in the text uh, with respect to verses 1 uh, through 20. Jesus comes, he begins to teach, large crowd gathering around into the boat. And you can see him clamoring all the way up to the shore. And what's the first word Jesus says? First word in verse 3, tell me, what is it? Listen! You would be wise to do what Jesus says, wouldn't you? In the same way that he told the people in front of him that day, hey, listen, pay attention, perk up your ears. You would be wise right now to do the same thing. To listen to what God has to say. To hear what he is suggesting to you and I here this morning. And then Jesus begins to tell them. Right here comes the sower and out he's sowing seeds. Out they come and and just broadly sowing. We'll say over here, okay, I'm not making any suggestions of anyone sitting on the aisle here, all right? But here's the path. It's hard and it's wore down. It's impenetrable. And some of the seeds go there. And then over here, right here's some of the rocky ground. In they go. Up they shoot quickly. And as soon as the sun comes out, right, they get scorched. And then over here we have the thorny ground. And up it comes, but choked out. Anyone who gardens ever knows this reality of weeds and things that want to destroy what's in there. And then y'all are like the good soil, okay? (laughs) I don't know if it's true or not, okay? But like the good soil, and it produces. It bears fruit. And so Jesus says again in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right again, pay attention. And then Mark moves away from it for a moment. And he starts telling us about this behind-the-scenes encounter with Jesus and his his disciples. And like, what was that all about, man? Tell me. Talk to me. What what, what are you saying here? And then, um, right, Jesus begins to give us some insight. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. You're on the inside. The true followers, you're on the inside. You're with me. You get it. I'm going to explain it to you. Verse 11. But for those outside... Everything's in parables. See, what what we've already begun to see contextually is this divide between Jesus and those who follow him legitimately and truly and those, i.e. the religious leaders and others like them who do not. And as we move through the book of Mark, that divide will become much clearer, much stronger, and much more intense. And what started with them devising a plan back in chapter 3, verse 6 to destroy him will culminate in Jesus being butchered and sent to the cross. Okay, it'll, be, it'll become very, very clear. But on the inside and on the outside. And then Jesus says this in verse 12, and, and, and at a casual glance, we might go, what is going on here? He says, here's why I'm doing parables, so that, those, the, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And you might look at that and go, wait a second. He's trying to trick them? Like, is he out to deceive them? What's, what's he doing? What's his point? What's his purpose here? Well, in the same way that it's important to understand the context of Mark, it's important to understand the context that that verse finds itself in. And you find that in the middle of Isaiah chapter 6. Well, here's, let me give you a little context in Isaiah that might help us to understand that verse. Uh, if you go back to Isaiah 5, God begins to tell us about his special little vineyard. And yet what the people did is they rejected that little vineyard. They, they, they destroyed the vineyard. They didn't care for the vineyard. And so then God begins to pronounce judgment upon the people. 
It's like, fine, you don't want it? Then, then here's the punishment, here's the consequence for that. And then you have the beginning of Isaiah 6, which is Isaiah's throne room vision. In which Isaiah ultimately says, or, or, or when the Trinity is having this conversation, who, will she, who should we send, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. God says, okay, here's what I want you to tell the people. And it's this right here. They're going to see, but they're not going to perceive. They're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. They're not going to turn. They're not going to repent. They're not going to come back. Here's what you've got to understand about Isaiah 5 and 6. The people rejected the message of God. And then God in his faithfulness gives them another opportunity to hear. That's the whole of Isaiah's ministry, except they're going to reject that too. And it's an evidence that they are worthy and deserving of God's judgment and wrath. And the parables, listen, the parables function in the same way. That God is making clear the reality of who he is. And people will turn and follow or they will reject and walk away. That's the backdrop with which we're to understand this parable. And that's how Mark frames it. So now let's just begin to press into it. Look at verses 13 and following. And Jesus here teaching about our response to God's word. And maybe before we get to these four soils, maybe just a quick preface here. First of all, I would ask you to just consider this. What is my response to God's word? Not my spouse, not my children, not my parents. What is my response to God's word in my life? How do I respond to his truth, his direction in my life? And I think our tendency is, as we look at these four soils, and we all want to go on that last soil, can I just encourage you to not assume right now that you're the good soil? That's a dangerous presumption. That's a dangerous assumption. You know who else would have thought that they were the good soil? Is all the religious leaders that Jesus was talking about right here. He's saying, you're not the good soil. You're not receptive to my word. It does not find any place inside of you. Please, loved ones, don't presume or assume that you are, in fact, the good soil. Let's just talk about each of these for a moment. Verse 15, or verse 14, the sower sows the word. Right over here, y'all. Y'all gonna be the path. Okay, we'll come back over here. So on the path it goes. It's a good warning for you. Don't stick your tongue out at me, Gary. All right? Um, <laughs> It's hard, it's beaten down, it's impenetrable. And you might go, that's not fair. That's not fair, man. They never had a shot. No, that's the point. They had a shot. They hardened their heart. It's impenetrable. They rejected. I want nothing to do with you. And can we just be honest about the reality that when Jesus says, When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Can we just be honest about the fact that this is a spiritual battle? That this very much is the reality? That this should be such a warning to us to not harden our heart, to not become so calloused that we would fail to hear or see what God is calling us to? The reason that they're so exposed is because they have so hardened and calloused their hearts towards God. What a great warning for each of us this morning to not make that same mistake. Clearly, clearly, clearly not followers of God. And then we, these next two soils, I always kind of find this interesting. Um, 
people love to debate whether soil two and soil three, are they saved or are they not saved? Like, are, are they going to heaven or are they not? And, and we'll have these raging debates and we'll go to all over the scriptures to try to determine, they are or they aren't. Can I just say two things about this? One, nothing positive is said about them here in the text. So why would we want to be one of those soils? And two, what we see throughout these parables is a tangible manifestation is revealed in people who are receptive to God's word. We don't see a tangible manifestation. We don't see a fruitfulness in them. So I'd be really leery to even make the argument, yeah, I think they're saved. I don't think they are. My study this week, I've gone back and forth over my life. Oh, they are, they aren't, they are, they aren't. And I think these other parables at the end give us insight into how, we're see, how we see them. I think only the fourth one is truly legitimately saved. Let's just look at each of them here for a moment. Rocky soil. It's uh, verse 16 and 17. These are the ones sown on the rocky ground. And then check out this description. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Well, that seems pretty positive. That's a good thing. I I don't know, Mike. You might have to reconsider this. Well, look at what it goes on to say. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This is like that thin layer of topsoil on top of a bunch of bedrock. Plant shoots up quickly in the springtime. And we know this, right? I mean, it gets hot. It gets hot in the summer. No root, no ability to retain water, no chance of survival. They can't handle the persecution. It's like, I didn't sign up for this. This, this isn't what I wanted. I think a pretty clear example of this type of soil, this type of reception of the people we see in John 6. Remember what happened in John 6? Jesus, hard, hard teaching. In fact, John even tells us, this is, it's a hard teaching. And that was the people's response. This is a hard teaching. Who, who can understand this? Who can follow this? And then those grievous words that he says right after that, and after that, many of them no longer followed him. They walked away. It's too hard. Couldn't handle it. I wonder for how many of us are we sitting here this morning and we go, man, it's too hard. I don't want to do this. I, I, I can't do this. This is so brutal. Or man, I didn't sign up for this. Like, wh- wh- where d- did God tell me that it was going to be hard? Well, throughout the entirety of the New Testament, to be honest. I was reading this just last week in 1 Peter. Really, the whole of 1 Peter is written to a group of believers that are scattered because they're being persecuted. I think it has a little something to do with suffering and difficulty. But here, listen to this. Peter talks about what it is to suffer as a follower of Jesus. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Check this out. As though something strange were happening to you. It's like, why are you surprised by this? You knew all along this was going to happen. And he goes on, he says this. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of the glory, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then listen to his conclusion. This is awesome. Write this down, 1 Peter 4, 19. You're going to want to memorize this. You want to look it up and you're going to want to memorize this. Here's his conclusion. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Wait, what? Let those who suffer according to God's will. You ever think that your suffering might be on purpose? That's what he's saying. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Isn't that awesome? That's like the antithesis of the rocky soil. I'm going to entrust my soul to a faithful creator while doing good in the midst of the suffering and the persecution that God intentionally chose for me. Rocky soil, no endurance. This is like front runner bandwagon soil. Nothing to do with that. Then you have this third soil, the thorns. The thorns, now throughout the, the, the scriptures, the thorns typically represent either agricultural neglect or a bad crop. The, the absence of fruitfulness. Look at what it says. And others are one sown among the thorns. There are those who hear the word. And like the, the rocky soil, there's some receptivity to it, but it doesn't last because in verse 19, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. And here it is. And it proves unfruitful. It came up, but not to maturity, not to fruitfulness. I think this soil, by and large, is the best descriptor of what the church has been in the last number of decades. We're distracted. We're more into the provision and the blessing of God than we are into God himself. We love the gifts, not the giver. And we've been talking about that these last few weeks. We've been choked out by the good things that are meant to point and press us right back to him. And just ask yourself, is there anything in my life, is there anything in my life that is choking uh, my devotion to Jesus? And if so, what am I willing to do about it? And then you have the good soil. Right, you have the good soil. And, and look at what, what Jesus tells us. Those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. And see, and I think here's the key. And bear fruit. There's a tangible manifestation. There's tangible evidence. Now, I, I don't know where in Christendom bearing fruit meant that you saw people get saved. That is like one of uh, hundreds of manifestations of God's fruitfulness in our lives. Please, please, please don't hear bear fruit and think, well, I haven't led anyone to Jesus, so I have never bore fruit. That is a very skewed, narrow, and pointed understanding of fruitfulness in the scriptures. But make no mistake, they are bearing fruit. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. In fact, they're incredibly fruitful. All right, this is what we want to be. This is what we want to be. I, we don't want anything to do with those other soils. No thanks, man. I want to bear fruit. So here's what's going on. Here's Jesus' point in all of this. Is he's calling us to both hear 
and to respond to the message of the kingdom. He is sowing seed, right? That's what he tells us back in Mark 1. I, he, uh, he came to proclaim the gospel of God. That's what, he, that's what he said. He's sowing seed. And this parable is about our receptivity to his word and if we're going to respond accordingly. There's tangible evidence. Because God's word has found a place within me. There is a tangible evidence, a tangible manifestation of that. That when I live for the kingdom, the priorities of the kingdom become the priorities for me. Just ask yourself right now, are, are kingdom priorities my priorities? Are kingdom priorities my priorities? Well, Mike, what, what are the kingdom priorities? What, what, what would that be? Well, here's just a few of them. Uh, worship. Do I worship God? I'm not talking about do you sing songs about him or to him, though that's part of it. I'm talking about do you worship him? Do you love him? Are you thankful for him? Do you adore him? Are, are, are you so grateful and overwhelmed by him? Or it's like, oh yeah, he's there sometime. That's not worship. Identification of someone's presence is not adoration or worship. I can't tell you how often I've sat with married couples. They're, they can clearly identify each other's existence. They don't love each other. To identify God's presence is not to worship him. It's to love him, to worship him, to be thankful for him, to be grateful to him. Am I about his glory? The glory of God. Understanding that's why I exist. That's the very purpose for my existence. The reason that I'm here, that God is glorified in my life. How about the gospel? I mean, the gospel is such a multifaceted entity, but the idea of, of, of sharing and proclaiming the gospel, the idea of discipleship and walking with one another, the idea of service, is that a priority in my life? How about eternity? Do I think eternally? Is my heart for eternity? When I say eternity, you're like, oh. Or it's like, oh man, I can't wait. Where's your heart? See, this is the fruitfulness, this is the productivity in the good soil that I would accept and respond to his word, that I'm receptive to that. Now this parable, this first one really frames these other three. And as we have this kingdom focus, as there's a receptivity to the word, it, it, it almost assumes that in these next ones because it frames really our response. Right? The, the, these next three become the tangible reality of how we respond. So look at verse 21 and following. Here's the second thing we see is he starts talking about this lamp. And he said to them, a lamp is, is, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. I mean, who does that? I pull out a light, but I'm going to cover it. I mean, that's dumb. The whole point of a light is to illuminate, to make known, to, to, to let it be seen. And so when Jesus asked this question, no doubt everyone's like, well, of course you wouldn't do that. See, here's what the second parable is pointing us towards. We have the lamp. And part of the tangible manifestation that God's word has taken root in my life is that we make the kingdom known. You and I make the kingdom known. Verse 22, nothing is hidden 
except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. He's like, listen, the kingdom, right now it's not fully known, it's not fully understood, that's going to change. And you and I are going to be part of seeing that change. It's to make him known. The whole point of a light on a stand is to radiate, to illuminate, to shine. It's our point. It's to be a light, to radiate, to shine, to make known, to proclaim, to point people towards Jesus and the gospel. Okay, question. Am I willing to make the kingdom known? Am I? Ask yourself, am I willing to make the kingdom known? Am I committed to this? Is this a part of who I am? Because part of the, the, the word finding its place within us, part of us being receptive to the word, is then the, the, the turnaround where the gospel just begins to spill out of us. Now, I think there's, there's no shortage of ways that this can be done, but here's, here's very one tangible manifestation of this. And uh, Pastor Stefan talked about this during announcements. Um, but in the lobby, we have like 300 of these things. And there are others in there too. These little invitations uh, where you can invite people uh, to a, a, a breakfast potluck and church on Easter. It's like the easiest thing in the world, man. Here you go. You want to come to church? We'll feed you for free. That always works. Man, that's like the easiest sell in all of humanity. I don't care where you are. It's the easiest sell there is. And that's part of why we're doing this. So I want to be really clear. Make no mistake about it. Like, I'm excited about sharing the, the greatest celebration that we have as followers of Christ. I'm excited about sharing that with you all. But it's not about you and I sharing it with each other. It, it's about putting him on a stand and making him known. This is one of the few cultural vestiges that we still can hold on to that people don't look at us like this. It's totally weird that you would invite me to church on Easter. It is kind of weird that we would invite some people to church in our society today. That's kind of weird now. This is one of the few times it's not weird. Yeah, give them to strangers. Take them to the gym. Take them to the library. Take them to your place of work. Hand them out. to. I've, I've given these to perfect strangers before. Start having some random conversation. Hey, bro. Come to our church. It's funny when we pay attention to these things, when we lock into these things, how often we can have conversations like this. You might be shocked. In fact, I'd just encourage you this week, I'd grab a few of those on your way out of the door uh, uh, today and just say, God, every day, just ask God in the morning, God, would you help me to find someone to hand this out to? I think you'll be shocked at how many of these you're going to, you probably have to come back on Tuesday or Wednesday and get some more, okay? But to make the kingdom known, Where my heart is at? I mean, has God's word been so rooted inside of me that I want people to know who Jesus is and what he's done for us? I'm all for discretion and discernment, right? I mean, there have certainly been Christians who have been just downright obnoxious with respect to that. And I'm not telling you that. But what Jesus is pushing us towards is the fact that we make him known, that we talk about the kingdom and God's word and being receptive to that. This lamp put on a stand. And then Jesus says this in verse 24 and 25. He says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. Okay, so something's going to be, what's going to be added? Well, look at verse 25. For to the one who has, more will be given. 
And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What is he talking about there? Well, what's happening contextually? Verses 1 through 20, he's talking about us being receptive to the word or not receptive. In verse 21, 22, 23, he's talking about putting the word on a stand and us proclaiming that. So when we get to verse 24 and 25, it's informed by what's happened prior to that. Right? Our ability to receive in verse 24 and 25 is tied to our receptiveness to the word, to the proclamation of God's kingdom. And so when he says for the, to, for, to the one who has in verse 25, that's the one whose God's word has found its place in our heart. Okay, for that person, more will be given. Ooh, I like that. Okay, but for those that the word has not found its place rooted inside of us, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. See, this is a spiritual blessing or a spiritual curse. That's what he's saying. Those that refuse, even what they have is going to be taken away. Those who embrace what God gives to them, he's going to give them even more. Now, it's not a physical giving. It's a spiritual giving. It's a contentment. It's a joy. It's a satisfaction in the Lord. Will I make the kingdom known? Will I embrace Jesus' mission to proclaim the gospel? And this third parable... Right? So the receptivity to the word, I'm going to make him known. And so look at what um, Jesus tells us in verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Man, that sounds a whole lot like this other parable he just told us. But look at what he goes on to say. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. And I love this. He knows not how. A guy's scattering seed, right? Out it goes. Sleep, rise, sleep, rise, sleep, rise. There's a plant. Sleep, rise, sleep, rise, sleep, rise. There's fruit. He goes on, he says this, verse 28. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. See, this third parable about this mysteriously growing seed, I think part of what Jesus is teaching us here is that we would know that the kingdom is ultimately God's work. Everything about the kingdom is ultimately the work of God. That God is the one who's doing this. I mean, Jesus even tells us, this guy doesn't even know how to, what's going on. He doesn't know what's happening. I'm the one doing the work. The, the earth produces by itself. I'm the one doing this. That's what God is telling us here. The work of the kingdom is ultimately God's work. Now, he lets us participate in it. He lets us play a role in it. But make no mistake, all the heavy lifting is done by him. He's the one doing the heavy lifting. And so here's just a few implications with respect to this idea that, that we would know that the kingdom is ultimately God's work. First of all, make note of this, loved ones, that we would trust God in his work. If I really believe the kingdom of God is ultimately God's work. In fact, I stood up here at the very beginning and said, I have no power to change you. I have to trust the work of God. I have to trust the work of the Spirit. I have to trust that the work and the investment and the prayer and the time and the energy invested in, in, in what's happening right now, that God is going to use that. We trust God in his work. More specifically, here's maybe a few ways that you and I can trust God in his work. First of all, that we trust that it's right. That God is right in what he's doing. That he's right in his purposes. That he's right in how he's moving. That he's right in what, the, the effect that he's having in everyone's life. Second of all, we don't like this one. 
He's right in his timing. God's always right in his timing. He's never late, and we're so thankful for that, but it's kind of frustrating because he never shows up early either, does he? He's always right on time. And doggone it, sometimes it'd just be really nice if he'd show up earlier. So some of you right now, you got something going on in your life, and you're like, God, why? Why is this still going on? Why is this still happening? Why haven't you done this? And God's like, because it's not the right time. You got to trust me that I'm right in my work. You have to trust that God's work is best. God's work is best. It's always best. Sometimes it won't feel like that in the moment. Sometimes it'll be hard to see that. God's work is always, always the best work. You got to trust that God's work is always done in love. Sometimes God will do some really hard things. I mean, that verse in 1 Peter 4, that, that I would suffer according to God's will. That's a hard verse. But it's because God loves us and he wants what's best for us. And in the same way that a loving parent will, 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 will discipline their child, God will discipline his children. He will correct his children. He will move us through things that we trust God and his work. I think even playing off this particular parable and the metaphor here, just because you and I can't see it or explain it doesn't mean it isn't happening. Some of you pretty soon, you're going to start gardening, you're going to start putting some seeds in the ground. And I'm willing to bet that you're going to put it in there and within 30 seconds, you're not going to see a plant coming up. I mean, that's probably a fair assumption, right? I've never had that happen. For some of those, it'll be a few days. Some of them, it'll be a few weeks. But we know that something's happening. We just can't see it. And the same is true with God. We trust God in his work. Secondly, we credit God for his work. We credit God for his work. I don't know about you. Maybe I'll just speak for myself in this, but um, I can be pretty quick to move to that place where I'm a glory thief. You know what I'm saying? Where God does it, but I'll take the credit for it. And, um, and yeah, yeah, you're welcome. I didn't do that. God did that. And I know I'm not alone in that. Uh, all of us do that at some level, but, but how quickly we can move from taking credit that doesn't belong to us. It belongs only to God. So when we know that the kingdom is ultimately God's work, we credit God for his work. And then I just wrote this down thirdly with respect to this, that we would faithfully do our part. Like, wait a second, it, it, God's doing the work and we've got to trust him and it's about him. Right. But see, all of, all of it is God's work, but the specific way that God has chosen for you and I to participate in that is just that, is that he calls us to participate in it. That God gives us a role. That he lets us play a part. Now, he, he didn't have to. Probably would have been a lot more efficient if he would have just used angels or really anything else. But he chose you and I. We're the conduits. We're the instruments. We're the people that God say, hey, you're the ones I want to use. And so we faithfully do our part. That God allows us to be instruments used by him that we would proclaim when God calls us to proclaim that we would walk with others when God calls us to walk with them. That we would share, that we would give, that we would serve, that whatever it is, that we would do the things that God has called us to do and be. This kingdom living, we have this first parable about being receptive to the word. Does the word find its place in me? Secondly, I, I, I got to make the kingdom known. Okay, that, That's one of the manifestations that God's word has found a place in me is that the kingdom starts coming out in my life. And we see this third thing that we know that the kingdom is ultimately God's work. 
Last night, Becky and I had some good friends of ours over, uh, not believers, and um, definitely some spiritual baggage uh, in their background. And I actually had a great conversation around um, some of their beliefs and, and why they find themselves, where they find themselves, uh, talking about the distinction between uh, being religious and works and the grace of God and loving the person of God and things of that nature. Uh, but, but honestly, just the, the guy specifically said, yeah, essentially he summed it up as, you know, I'm on the fence between ag- being agnostic and atheist. As they walked out, shut the door, and Becky just looked at me, and she said, man, I'm glad we serve a big God. And I thought, man, I'm using that tomorrow. That fits perfectly. Because <laughs> he's the one doing the work. I'll never save them. She'll never save them. You will never save anybody. You can't even save yourself. It's part of the gospel. Jesus is the only one that saves. We have to understand he's the one that'll do the work. And then this final thing, because he's doing the work, you can can count on one thing. He's gonna do it well. And so the kingdom is gonna grow. Look at this final parable. We see the mustard seed. And I just wrote this down with respect to us that we would embrace the growth of the kingdom. Verse 30, he said, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use it for or use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This mustard seed. The mustard seed was proverbial for smallness. Jesus talked about if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move that mountain. And a mustard seed, it, it, it was a pretty small seed. In fact, it was the size of, roughly the size of a grain of sand. I mean, like, how do you plant that, right? I mean, that's just kind of like, I think I got it, and I can't even find it anymore. I just kind of move the dirt around and hope that thing comes up. And yet it would grow as a tree-like shrub over 10 feet. And so a great metaphor, a great parable to compare the kingdom of God. Let me just make a note here real quick because sometimes this becomes one of the areas where people want to try to pick on Jesus and say that A, he either didn't know this or B, he was a liar because we know for a fact that the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Okay? But listen very carefully to me. Jesus is not giving his listeners here a botany lesson. Okay? That's not what he's after. It doesn't even fit with the context. I mean, imagine for a moment, and, and you have to understand, for, for Jewish thinking, they did not care about mathematic or scientific precision like we did. They didn't care about that stuff. And so it's not that Jesus is being dishonest. It's not that he's being misleading. He's just speaking in a way that his audience would understand. So just imagine for a moment that he would appeal to our concepts of scientific and mathematic reason. And he's standing before these people and he's like, what should we compare the kingdom of God to? It's like an epiphytic orchid seed. What? Right? Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Oh, that's right. That's right. You guys wouldn't know that. Okay, so like in the tropics, the what? Okay, so the tropics, it's like this band of the earth by the equator and you've lost them. They have no concept. And it's not that it's untrue. Here's the deal. 200 years ago, we made comments about space. That in that moment, that's what everyone knew and we assumed. For goodness sakes, we used to think the earth was flat. And yet as we learn, we understand, oh, that's no longer untrue. 
Uh, you could argue and say, well, Jesus should have known better, but it's really a pretty foolish argument because we don't speak like that. That's not a convention of normal um, rationale or reason. And so here's what he's after, okay? Just understand, I want to touch on that real quick, but here's, here's what he's after. Jesus is making the point that the kingdom will start small, and it did. I mean, when he left, there's about 120 followers. It will start small, but it's going to grow a lot. And it has grown a lot. And he makes the illustration that this tiny little grain of sand is going to eventually house birds, like big birds. See, the kingdom is meant to grow and expand. It is not just for the select few. It's not just for like our favorite people. It's meant for all. When I was growing up, I grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona, which Flagstaff is funny because Stu Priggy, before the service, he'd made a comment about Flagstaff. And he's like, man, every first time I went through Flagstaff, I thought, this would be an amazing place to live. My thought was, yeah, if you like paying an exorbitant amount for housing and a ton of cold and you want to measure your, your snow and feet, it's a great place to live. If you don't want that, then yeah, it's kind of miserable. Now, it is a great place. It is a great place. And because of that, during the 90s, there was this incredible boom where all these people from California kept moving in. So if you're from California and I kind of give you a dirty look, you know why. Y'all were annoying and you kept moving in. But see, here was the funny thing that would happen. They would move in. And, and I'm not kidding, like within months, start complaining about all these other people who were moving in. <laughs> oh, the nerve, and they're ruining our town. And we've got to put, I mean, they were literally like starting to try to propose legislature that, that would limit the growth and all this stuff. And, and, it'd be, and they would start complaining, can you believe all these people moving in? And of course, I'm a lifer. I got generations of family there. And I go, oh, the irony. <laughs> yeah, you're free to move on out with the rest of them. But see, this is what we do with the kingdom. It's for me. It's just for us. It's like our little idyllic state, and we don't want anyone else coming in. We don't want anyone that's going to screw it up or mess it up, and we don't want broken people or messed up people because you're just going to ruin it. No, 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 that's not what the kingdom's about. Jesus is very clear. It's, it's for all people, not just for the select few that want to come in and shut the door or the gate right behind them. That we would embrace the growth of the kingdom. That we would long for that. That we would want that. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, going, Mike, are you even paying attention to what's happening? Like, can you not look around and see what is unfolding in our society? Can you not see what's happening to the church? Can you not see? We're, sh we're not growing, bro. We're shrinking. Let me say two things to that. First of all, Let's understand the whole of what's happening in our society first. Because for the last number of decades, if not for the last couple of centuries, it has been um, at the very least acceptable, if not socially advantageous, to be a believer. That is no longer the case. I get that churches are shrinking. I could rattle off all kinds of numbers to you about how churches are shrinking. I'm fully aware of that. But there's a huge distinction between people leaving and true followers of Jesus leaving. The church is not shrinking. The church is just being revealed for what it really is and what it isn't. We're just being exposed, which is what the biblical um, teaching and narrative told us would happen. Sheep and goats, wheat and tares, we get that. Don't freak out at what's happening. What's happening in our country is a good thing. 
There is a pruning that is happening in the church. There's a refinement that is happening in the church. And, and when that happens, here's the thing. I don't look forward to persecution personally. But for 2,000 years where the church has flourished, there's a direct correlation of persecution. So spiritually, I'm kind of fired up because things are going to get a whole lot better in the coming years once we embrace that and start pressing into that. Second of all, understand this just so you don't think um, that Jesus is a liar with respect to the kingdom. Uh, when you look at Christianity globally, it's exploding in ways we've never seen. You start reading stuff from missiologists and, and, and different people who do studies and, and things like this, and, and they go, we can't even compare. Like, there's no other time in history to even begin to point to and go, oh, it was kind of comparable. To, no, no, it's like incongruent with everything that we've ever seen. It's just not happening right in front of us. And so in one respect, I want you to be encouraged. God's doing the very thing that he said he would do here. It's exploding, and it will continue to explode. But I also want us to be challenged. Because when I thought about this this week, and I thought about the growth of the kingdom, I thought, I don't want to be the weak link. I, I don't want to be the group that's holding back the rest of the group. So loved ones, part of this is the challenge that it's time to be done playing games. It's time to be done being apathetic. It's time to be done being lukewarm. We were talking about that in our life group this week, what it is to be lukewarm. Revelation 3. Here's the thing. Jesus says, I would rather that you were cold. Think about it. Jesus, I'd rather that you were cold than lukewarm. Because I'm going to spit you out. It's time to be done being lukewarm. It's time to, let, let, let's embrace the growth. Let's be a part of this. Let's be challenged to live for the kingdom. Let's just tie this together here quickly. You have this first big parable about being receptive to God's word. Has God's word found a place in my heart, in my life? Is it flourishing within me? And maybe some of you are sitting here going, it's not. Okay, well, today is the best day to change that. To repent, to seek God's forgiveness. God, help me. God, would you teach me? Would you instruct me? Would you open your word to help us understand? And then, will I make the kingdom known? Will I embrace the fact that the kingdom is ultimately God's work? And then am I going to be fired up about the growth of the kingdom? That's what it is to be men and women who live for the kingdom. Let's pray.